I want to express my, my gratitude uh, for having the opportunity to be here and to uh, speak with you this evening. Um, I want to, to uh, first and foremost remember uh, a young child who uh, recently passed away, and I, and I speak tonight in his memory. His name is Eric Arden Fazy Alert and uh, he passed away at the, the age of 10, and he left us all, and, 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 and me with a little bit of wisdom. It was a saying, I believe, of his. He came home one day and told his mother shortly before he died, um, inch by inch, life's a cinch. Yard by yard, life is hard. I, I think uh, this is the time of the fast for Baha'is, and I think that's a particularly pertinent uh, piece of information uh, for us uh, uh, during these times, uh, the best gift that I have to give you. I don't believe it's my place to, to prove the existence of the near-death experience scientifically. I believe there's sufficient literature and, and data out there for people to, to uh, research and uh, satisfy their scientific curiosity. Um, but I think that the media has a tendency, having participated in it quite frequently, and being one of the first people to speak about the near-death experience on 2020, um, they have a tendency to edit out what I consider to be the most important and, and significant uh, uh, and salient points about the near-death experience. Um, I don't think that uh, having a near-death experience uh, occurs to people because they're necessarily special. Um, there are ways at, at looking at this, as, uh, especially in, in American Indian culture, where these things are seen as happening to people not necessarily because of the particular uh, person or individual it happens to, but rather for the people as a whole. Um, and uh, I, I believe that is the case. What I'm about to speak tonight about tonight, the near-death experience, is inherently ineffable. It is truly beyond words. Uh, why is it beyond words? It's beyond words because all of our words reflect our perception and experience in a world of time and space. In this world, there's only one way we can come to an understanding. Uh, there's only one way that we can cross a road. There's only one way that we can approach a goal, and that is step by step and gradually. And we perceive th things via our sensory organs, and, and we perceive them as a result, really, of this time and space, physically. But in the realm of the near-death experience, there is no time and there is no space. Therefore, there truly are no words because that type of transcendental experience is, is beyond uh, the, the words that we have at our, at, our, uh, at our hands. The physical explanations for the NDE, the near-death experience, are equally as speculative, and I think even more so, <laughs> uh, than, than, uh, than the, the spiritual or the religious. 
they seem to be forced and inadequate. Uh, there are those that have said that the near-death experience is a result of uh, wishful thinking. Um, this really doesn't make much sense because wishes differ entirely amongst individuals as do expectations and uh, the five common elements have been found across all faith groups and uh, people, cultures. The idea that it's a hallucination also does not seem to hold water because an hallucination, uh, during an hallucination, an individual experiences a, a distorted reality. Uh, whereas people who've had a near-death experience say that they've experienced a, a heightened sense of reality, not at all distorted. The lack of oxygen does not explain the near-death experience because there have been individuals who've had near-death experiences um, uh, resulting from or during hyper-oxygenization. So there was not a lack of necessarily oxygen. And the idea that neurological factors were present, uh, in other words, that perhaps there were frontal lobe seizures uh, again, does not seem to hold water with the data because uh, near-death experiences, experiencers report a heightened sense of reality. And again, uh, frontal lobe seizures result in uh, the individual perceiving a distorted environment and, and not a heightened sense of reality. There's also uh, the idea of psychological depersonalization, uh, explaining the near-death experience. However, um, again, the reports of individuals saying that they've had a heightened sense of reality uh, doesn't uh, correlate with this because depersonalization results in the individual feeling a sense of unreality and of, of being disconnected. Well, with that as, as introduction, again, I, I remind you now to uh, uh, begin to, to listen with your hearts, and, and I will recount to you uh, my near-death experience at the age of 16. Uh, I had one at the age of seven. Six or seven, I'm, I'm not exactly sure when it was, because between the ages of six and seven, I was, I was uh, uh, near death <laughs> the entire time. But uh, I had one at the age of 16 and one at the age of 17. The one at the ages of 16 and 17 were both instances of clinical death where I was pronounced dead. One was during a surgery in which the surgery had to be discontinued and taken up at a later date, so there was definite physical evidence of losing me in the, uh, on the operating table. And the other, and the one that I'll speak of primarily tonight was at the age of 16, where again I was pronounced clinically dead at Glendale Adventist Hospital in Glendale, California, as a result of anaphylactic shock. Anaphylactic shock is what people have when when um, they have severe allergic reactions and uh, perhaps they die from a, 
from a shot of penicillin. I'm sure you've all heard of that, or, or a bee sting. It's where the body uh, literally shuts down. Well, it's May 20th, 1967, and it's late in the afternoon. I've come home uh, from the doctor in the morning with my mother, and I seem to be getting better. The swelling has, has gone down. My hives do not seem to be as severe. And my mother and I sit down alone. My father is out of town around our dining room table for dinner. A friend comes to join us. He's also 16 at this time and sits down at the dinner table and begins talking to my mother and I. I begin to feel as if my consciousness is being pulled away. I begin to feel as if my being were a piece of taffy and it's being stretched and attracted elsewhere. And it's a, it's a very pleasant feeling, yet I'm very much aware that uh, I'm ready to black out, I'm ready to pass out. So I stand to, to warn my mother, and at that very instant I uh, blacked out and was on the floor. My mother and uh, my high school friend loaded me into the car and started to drive to the hospital. At that point in time, uh, the area in which we were living was primarily rural, and the nearest hospital uh, was uh, 20 to 25 minutes away. By the time they got down to the bottom of our driveway, my friend called out to my mother that I wasn't breathing and he didn't know how to uh, give mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. They, they pulled over at the bottom of the sidewalk of our driveway, flagged down a passing policeman and asked him to send for an ambulance. They laid the body out then on the sidewalk and my next point of consciousness was when I heard the whirring of the fire engines coming down our street of their sirens seemed very uh, unreal to me because I simply wanted silence. I simply wanted to be left alone. And yet there was a great commotion around me. I heard the shuffling of the firemen's boots and the, the whoosh of oxygen from, from the mask being uh, uh, forced down my throat, and I heard then my best friend calling out to me, Renee, don't die, Renee, don't die. This was a small town, and by this time, a number of neighbors and uh, friends had gathered around the body on the sidewalk, and there, there was a commotion. And uh, that was what I was aware of, was, was this commotion, and my friend calling me, Renee, don't die. This to me seemed impossible and absolutely absurd. But I realized intellectually that I was 16 and that I was dying, and that I had a responsibility to fight for my life. I had a responsibility to avoid being sucked into the sense of peacefulness and, and, and security that I felt attracting me, and I began to fight for my life not for my sake, but for the sake of my friend, 
for the sake of my mother, for the sake of my neighbors. And I tried to will my heart to beat. I could literally feel the blood slowing down in my legs and my toes and my feet. Um, but I willed the heart to keep beating, to keep moving the blood, until this became a battle that was too much to endure. It became too much of a struggle. And I realized uh, that it was simply uh, beyond my control, the matter of life and death. And I surrendered to the power that created me at that point in time. And with that, I began to feel my consciousness pull up to a place around the heart and the life pull out of the, the very extremities of my body. And there was a great sense of peacefulness, of luxuriant surrender and calm and, and, and beauty that we don't usually have access to in this realm of existence. <laughs> Thank you. Then in an instant, I found myself like that, outside of the body. And I, it was as if I had never been myself before. It was as if I had never been alive before. By contrast, I had never experienced consciousness before because in an instant, I was suddenly conscious, suddenly massively conscious. And I was conscious just not of a self, but of all of those around me, of their inner thoughts, of their inner motivations, of their inner beings, of their inner realities, of all those that cared for me, of the firemen, the two firemen that were working on me, of my mother and, and the neighbor, of this great sense of catastrophe and grief and shock. It was as if I were all of the people all at once, with a consciousness even beyond their own normal consciousness. And it was overwhelming. It was astounding. It, it was as if I were literally being pummeled by consciousness and by awareness. I followed the attention of those in the crowd around the body to something that was then on the sidewalk. And I began to examine it as if with their own eyes. And I looked and I recognized the curve of this wrist here, which was about all that was visible because I was being straddled at that point in time um, by the fireman who was then, uh, who had then result, resorted to mouth-to-mouth uh, -mouth resuscitation. Um, I heard them uh, say that we've lost her, that I, I heard that one fireman talking to the other one, saying, we've lost the pulse. And I was fully aware of the elder fireman who had straddled me, uh, that he couldn't allow this to happen. He felt that he couldn't turn and face my mother because he too had a, had a daughter that was about two years younger than I at that point in time. And he imagined turning to face his wife and telling her that uh, their child had died. And he. 
he refused to, to give up the struggle. The sudden awareness of, of this cacophony of, of, of input and this, my sudden repulsion at the very idea that I had considered my essence, my reality, my being to be this body was, was so horrific to me and so hurtful to me that, again, my consciousness bumped up like that above some wires. Again, this makes no sense in terms of the way that we move physically uh, because suddenly I realized I was without a body. And as I called to those beneath me, trying so hard to communicate to them that everything was as it should be, that I was fine, that I was free, that we were eternally and essentially and always uh, uh, connected and we would never be separate because of our love for one another. As I tried to call out to them, and I realized they didn't hear me, and as I tried to warn them of a child coming out of a house down the street, actually, which was not something that was at all physically visible from my uh, vantage point, who was going to see the body on the sidewalk and who was going to be shocked seeing this swollen and rather gray-looking, distorted uh, body. Uh, and I was calling out to his mother to collect him. Then I realized that they couldn't hear me, that I couldn't touch them, that I had no mouth, I had no voice, I had no body, I had no place in this realm of existence anymore. And so, with that realization, I called upon God for assistance to guide me to my new home. My consciousness, which then could best be described as if it were a ball of light and it was conscious <laughs> and it could perceive into, like a sphere, like uh, it had massive senses and a spherical sense, uh, then, then began, began to rise. And as I rose, I saw beneath me the street and the town and the little valley and the little area in, in, in which we lived. And then I began to continually ascend until I could see the entire earth. And I could see not in the sense that one sees with physical eyes, where I am the perceiver and there's an object here that I perceive, but this seeing was really a sense of, of being, of experiencing, of, of knowing, of, of a total gestalt, you might say, of, of, of the entire uh, earth. And I could see that the earth was essentially one, and that we as human beings have a unique uh, creative and spiritual responsibility for the state of the earth, because really by the state of our hearts, we can create around us in our environment um, effects. And I could see that nothing existed for an instant without purpose. Nothing existed alone. No thought went unnoticed. The intention of no heart 
went without impact upon every molecule in existence, let alone uh, you can imagine the impact of, of one heart upon another, even of people who had no connection or way of knowing one another. You could see that the earth was one and that we, as the human body, were one. I could also perceive that all reality, all existence, was emanating from a source of light and life and love, and that all physical reality reflected this life and light and love to whatever extent it's possible. At this point, I became so enchanted that I was beyond being, I think, a self. I simply was, and it was as if I were singing my own note in this grand symphony of life and existence that's the earth and all of us. And I began to sing, I am. And it was not a statement of ego or self. It was really a statement of absolute love that that by my being I simply was expressing absolute love and connectedness and unity and harmony with all of existence. And I was adding my particular and absolutely unique note to this grand song of life that reverberated throughout all existence. I turned then to the source of light and life that I could feel penetrating this physical world. And I began to, to move towards it. And as I moved towards it, I entered what I can, what has been described as the tunnel. It was really a place of transition. It was a place that I perceived to be limited, a place of, of uh, relative uh, uh, darkness, and it seemed to be a place of confusion for many souls who uh, were wandering there. They were beyond my assistance, but I remember praying for them and realizing, remember knowing that uh, I was powerless really uh, to touch these beings. What moved me through this phase of, ex of the experience, through what's known as the tunnel, this constricted sort of a junction between the worlds, I discovered was not a decision on my part. It was not a, a motivation. Uh, there was no way to gain one's a place of location. It was as if I were a diver at the bottom of the sea without being able to, to see the sun. What moved me through this place of transition was love. This was the force, the attractive force and, and the motivator that uh, moved me through this phase of transition. And this was the, the love of all loves. So it wasn't mere human love, but it was really 
the love of, of God, the love of goodness, the love of beauty, the love of mercy, the love of compassion, the love of all of those abstract spiritual qualities. This moved me through that place of transition. And as I moved, the thought and the reality became one and the same as I wondered whether I would be alone. And at that instant, I merged with my uncle. And this was a glorious um, homecoming because I had been very enchanted with my uncle. He had been a, a about six foot five, very tall man, looked like a mohawk. Um, my uncle, Jean, and he had passed away about a year and a half before, and I was uh, very sad because uh, he lived on the other side of the country uh, in uh, Tennessee and North Carolina, and we lived in California, and I never had a chance to really spend any time with him in this life, although I loved him dearly. And so this was a grand reunion, but it was beyond the reunion that we can have in this physical life. It wasn't as if we were hugging like this, because this is as close as two people can come physically, really, but it was as if we were two lights or two fragrances or two essences that completely merged. And his reality became my reality, and my reality became his reality, and everything that he was or knew or ever wanted or thought or felt and everything likewise that I was or knew or felt or knew or any spiritual essence that on my part, these two became literally as one. While this was incredibly joyous, still I felt beyond the calling of my ultimate home. I moved then again through the power of the force of attraction of love from this uh, reunion with my uncle into what I can best describe as a sea of light. This sea of light, it was as if one had entered uh, the solar wind and uh, it was as if uh, every atom had become a sun in and of itself. And every one of these suns was singing and welcoming uh, me as an individual into this realm of existence with a, uh, a song of beauty and unconditional love. This love of which, which I speak can best be described as agape, not as human love, but rather this uh, impersonal, uh, global, pure, uh, unconditional, um, selfless and, and stainless and creative force of love that I felt. And I felt these sons welcoming me into the sea of light and again, I was being moved through the sea of light on waves of greater and greater and increasing love. Then again, in an instant like that, I entered the center of the sea of light. 
which was, to me, the essence of all essences, the source of all sources, the source of all life and all reality and existence. And with the entering into this sun, I can best describe it, it was as if I had become the quintessential phoenix. The entering into this sun really became the, the instant of dissolution of self, the dissolving of uh, the personal and, and separate uh, uh, reality that we know to be ourselves. And this state of absolute nothingness as an individual, but this was a state of being in and of, and because of the light, was to me uh, the apex of everything that I could have ever hoped for. It was really the desire of all desires to be as nothing in this loving and powerful and incredibly uh, beautiful light. It seemed that I existed in that state, in that state of nothingness, really, for a time beyond time. And yet, then again, I was gathered together as an individual. It was as if I had become sands upon a shore, and I was gathered together and, and put back as the individual that I had always known as my own consciousness. And at that point in time, I was called to account for the deeds of my life. This is what's spoken of in the near-death literature as the life review. Rather than being a review, it was really more like a reliving of, of of my life, but from a much greater point of consciousness, and the life of every other human being that I had ever affected in any way through any of my actions while I existed on this, in this physical world. Suddenly I became aware that nothing went unnoticed, not a thought, not an intention, not a moment not a tear shed, not, uh, not a smile, not a blink. Nothing in our lives goes unnoticed. And that every moment of my life, as is true for all of us, uh, we were being, uh, I was being showered with this unconditional, this uh, great and creative force this tremendous power of God or of love. And suddenly, by that standard, when I relived my life, it was as if I had held a candle to the sun and I instantly had a point of perspective. And suddenly I realized it wasn't enough. It could never be enough. I could never express enough of this loving force in this world through my choices. I could never have uh, given enough. Uh, I couldn't have sacrificed my life for humankind every moment of my life. And that, that, that wouldn't have been enough in comparison to uh, the extent of the love with which, and the mercy and the bounty, and, and the glory with which 
every soul by its very existence is being showered at every instant, uh, although we seem to be unaware. So from this perspective, I relived my life. And it was as if every action were a stone thrown into a pond of water. And those actions had effect on every living individual in one way or another, even though we couldn't, in this physical life, truly perceive that. And so you can imagine every action that was loving, that I relived through my own choice, and then through the effect that it had on the people that I interacted it with, and then through the people that they then inter- interacted with, and so on, and so on, and so on, seen throughout all physical reality, every choice and every action that was loving became incredibly glorious, that was loving in a selfless sense um, and in an unconditional sense. Uh, And every action that uh, was selfish became as nothing, really. It was as if I were dead at that moment. And every action uh, that were motivated in any way that could be considered or construed as being cruel or with a cruel thought even, became incredibly hurtful. And I relived this not just as myself, but again as as every person that it had ever impacted, but from a greater point of consciousness than either I or, or they had in this physical life. I became aware that the greatest of my actions was not having owned anything or having known anyone or having been given any titles or names or having achieved anything in this physical world of existence that was necessarily recognized by humankind, such as becoming successful in one way or another. Uh, This was not important in judging my life. But the greatest of all of my actions were those that were motivated by selfless love. And the greatest of all of those was, uh, as a, a teenager, I had worked with retarded children every summer. And I had taken aside a small a young boy who was particularly difficult and, and particularly um, obnoxious and abrasive and, and usually rejected by the people in the camp and the children and the counselors and whatnot. And I had taken him aside one hot summer day and sat him on a wall and gave him uh, uh, some punch and uh, saying to him, And I simply wanted to express to him that he was precious, that he was unique, that he was lovable by, the very, by his very existence. I wanted really to express a sense of selfless love to this child who seemed to be uh, abandoned and rejected and viewed as worthless to all. This was an action that no one recognized. It was an action that I didn't even remember until uh, the near-death experience. 
but this was to have committed such an action, to have shown love to another individual regardless of their deservingness or, or their station or the recognition of, of anyone in this world, to show for selfless love, just an instant of selfless love in our, in our lives, to have done that, to have achieved that, was greater than to have, if I had been, become President of the United States or won the Nobel Peace Prize, that mere instant of showing forth love was greater than anything that we recognize as being accomplishments in, in this material world, in, in, in the way of uh, our social structures. And what was important was not merely the action, but the intent and the motivation of the action. This is what distinguished great from meaningless actions and moments. And again, the only proper motivation was the motivation of selfless and altruistic and unconditional love. The being beside me then took me to a place, it seemed, a separate place, to answer some questions that I had had in my heart. And these questions were not mere intellectual questions, but they were really concerns of my heart. Uh, From early childhood, I had uh, been a great reader uh, because uh, I came down with multiple sclerosis at the age of of seven, I had to spend a great deal of time in bed. I had to spend a great deal of time resting, and reading was my great foray into the world. And I began to read the newspapers every day. And I began to, to read every book in the house and books from the library and just uh, incredible things simply because this was my foray uh, into the world. This is my way of exploring with an ineffectual uh, body. And as a result of this, I repeatedly would question, where are we going? Where's humankind going? Why are we willing to destroy each other? Why are we willing to, to pile up uh, weapons and, and, and annihilate our children and, uh, and have such hatred towards one another because of uh, the names that we label ourselves, or the colors of our skin, or our ethnic backgrounds. Why were we uh, uh, willing to do that? And because of that, where were we going as, as a species, as humankind? The answer to this question became, again, sort of like a holographic reliving of the history of humankind. Um, That is just bizarre in terms of our normal experience in the physical world. But uh, it was as if I were every human reality from the state of the Neanderthal to uh, through the age of the Renaissance, through the age of the scientific revolution, into uh, the point in time in which we existed then in the 1960s and into into the future. And I became aware that we as humankind existed at the greatest point 
of our step in evolution that we will ever take in our development, that we existed on the verge of our maturity, that we existed at a point in which we must come to terms with ourselves as individuals in such a way that we can make peace with one another, each soul with one another, and therefore each uh, nation with nation, each ethnic group with each ethnic group, each religion with each religion. And I realized that uh, we were headed then for a time of great darkness and for a time of great tumult and, and confusion that there were two processes going on in this world of existence. As I saw it at this point of this greatest step in our evolution, one was the destruction of the world, and the breaking down into chaos of all systems and, and institutions and, and senses of order around us. And the other was the, the building of a new way of being a new way of being spiritually and socially in this world as individuals, starting with the smallest of actions and then building from there an entirely new reality, an entirely new society, an entirely new humankind. I saw um, then that there was a group of people that were really the hope of the world. And these people were the just. They had a title and they were the just. And as things began to break down, they began to bring people together. As people began to, to uh, become more and more polarized, more and more divided based on political parties and religious systems and ethnic groups and you know, places of birth and stations of wealth and of education and all of those things with which we label ourselves. As, as the world began to break down and more and more and more into chaos, these people began to gather the world together into a state of harmony, into a state of renewal, into a building, really, of a new civilization. And these were the just. And they were a religious group. I didn't know what religious group they were because I never heard of the just before. But uh, I knew that they would be recognized at this point in time because at some point in time every religion would be the source and the cause of warfare on the face of this planet when things began to speed up. Um, except for this particular religion. And in this particular uh, religion, the religion of the people of the just, they were willing to die to maintain peace and to bring uh, people together. Associated with this wonderful little group of people who seemed to be quite powerless and insignificant in the whole political and social scheme of things, there was a building, and I saw in this building, from this building, rather, uh, great uh, laws and guidance and protection and, and uh, light coming 
so that the people could be guided and they could be renewed. And yet this renewal uh, and, and uh, this guidance seemed to be ancient and uh, familiar. I saw two individuals standing on the on the, the side of, the, of a building down a colonnade and they were being handed laws and they were dressed in new robes and yet they were, they were in the style of the, perhaps ancient uh, Grecian robes to represent that, that it was old, it was new and it was old and they were in a land that was both new and old on a holy mountain that faced the Mediterranean as they accepted these laws. And I knew that if I could ever be back in this physical life, that I would have to find those people and help those people and help create a new reality and a new way of being heart by heart and, and person by person and then finally nation by nation and establish peace and, and unity on this planet so that we could continue to exist as humankind. I turned then to the being who was accompanying me and suddenly he began to take a form that I recognized. It was as if I had been surrounded by a holy storm of light, of created, creative and sacred light and he began to crystallize into an individual that I recognized. And I knew him, and he was, I knew, the blessed beauty. I didn't know what that meant, but he was the blessed beauty and the ancient beauty. And he, as he had some time before, in a vision, crystallized into a magnificent and glorious being and he again extended his arm to me in a gracious and loving and really a beautiful uh, manner and said and I understood this in words as I had before here am I, here am I and with those words it was as if that was all I could ever want, all I could ever be was to be in that presence and to, to, to simply die in that presence. If I could have given up my life, every instant of my life, uh, to be in that presence, it would not, uh, it would not be enough to be worthy of, of such a moment. And it seemed that I stayed there for time beyond time until my cup or my capacity or my ability to be in the presence of such incomprehensible glory and uh, beauty uh, was filled. And I found myself again, in an instant, you might say, viewing uh, something that was more recognizable in terms of, of uh, our existence on this plane of existence, in this world, I saw then a, a river, what seemed to be a river of light. And beyond that river, uh, 
a kingdom of, of beings. And these beings were all working and busy and loving and very much connected with one another, very much connected uh, uh, with this earth, very much connected with me as an individual. And I seem to know each and every one of them and, and love them all, know them intimately, know them better than I had known my own brother and sister or mother and father. And there was one man who stood welcoming me into this kingdom. And as I moved towards him again, not as a result of my own volition or a decision on my part, but rather as a result of my attraction and my love for him in this realm, as I moved towards him and began to cross this uh, river, the light itself spoke. And this was the word. That's the only way I can describe it. It was as if it was the creative word. And it said, it is not time. And with that, it was as if all existence froze. It was as if I not only froze, but everyone on, on the earth froze. I know it makes no sense. And then there was the second pronouncement, it is not time. And with the second pronouncement, I was catapulted down what seemed to be a rainbow tunnel of light, of deep decreasing tone and frequency of both spiritual intensity and light and sound and sentiment. I was catapulted down this tunnel and my soul itself was screaming back to be taken back home. And yet I was aware that it had been spoken, that the reality was, it is not time. I felt at that instant uh, a grief that was beyond individual or personal grief. It seemed to be an archetypal grief. It was as if I were Eve being cast out of the Garden of Eden. It was as if I had been shown the true reality, the ultimate paradise, and now suddenly I was being ripped away from this and being cast back into this suddenly foreign and harsh world. And again, in an instant, my consciousness, it was as if it crashed through the sky, and it was a very brutal and terrifying instant to me. I was incredibly disoriented and there seemed to be beings around me who I couldn't distinguish entirely uh, as individuals, although I were aware they were individuals, who were pushing and guiding my consciousness back to a point above the body. At this point in time, finally, an ambulance had arrived. They had placed the body on a gurney and they were placing the body then in the back of the ambulance. My mother was uh, climbing into the front seat of the ambulance and my friends were discussing with her, uh, uh, telling her that they would meet her at the hospital. And the whole thing seemed totally foreign to me. The idea of time and space seemed to me to be incomprehensible. It seemed something I could never again relate to. 
But again, I was being ushered back into this world by the presence of beings who seemed to be like spiritual sheepdogs, is the only way I can describe them. <laughs> they were very insistent. Um, They loaded the body into the ambulance, uh, and the ambulance then began what we timed, actually, what 2020 timed, uh, to be a 25-minute drive uh, from uh, La Crescenta to Glendale Adventist Hospital. Um, at that point in time, uh, they had no heartbeat when they put the body in the ambulance. I followed the ambulance uh, because I was forced to by my companions <laughs> who uh, were accompanying me uh, and uh, found myself inside of the ambulance at one moment and became aware of the attendant in the rear signaling to the attendant in the front with his hand. DOA, DOA in the rearview mirror so he wouldn't uh, drive at such a reckless speed and put the rest of the people's lives in danger who were in the ambulance. DOA, DOA. And at that instant, my mother was also looking in the rearview mirror. <coughs> she became aware that he had uh, pronounced me dead on arrival. This was now the second time that she had heard it. And her awareness became very much my awareness. It was as if I were my own mother and experiencing the death of my own child because I loved my mother. Um, and this awareness became so painful that, again, my consciousness bumped out of the ambulance and uh, uh, rode at, from that point in time uh, towards the hospital uh, from a vantage point above the ambulance. I watched them as the body was unloaded, taken into the emergency room as the first uh, young, exhausted uh, physician began to, to work on me. The ambulance attendants told him that uh, they had not had a heartbeat uh, from when they put me in the ambulance and that I was uh, no doubt to DOA, but he mechanistically began to work on this physical body. Because he had no caring, no sense of loving, uh, no sense of, of really, uh, I won't say, just no sense of loving and caring for this individual, this body on which he was working. My consciousness then left the emergency room. I was not interested in looking at a dead body and, uh, and a doctor who really didn't care about that person. I then moved to a place down the hallway and into an anteroom where my two friends had been seated and they were waiting and, and discussing the whole incident. And I became aware of what they were thinking and feeling and I tried to communicate to them my sense of excitement and wonder and awe and my sense of, of being absolutely thrilled that perhaps they were not going to be able to revive me at that point in time, and I could go on, and I was going to die, and it was wonderful. It was uh, glorious, and, uh, and I remember my girlfriend uh, being very excited and giggly at that point in time as I was trying to communicate this 
to her, and she felt, uh, she immediately felt extreme guilt over her silliness and in the situation. And, uh, and again, I became frustrated at my lack of ability to communicate to people in the physical form, and I moved to a place outside the emergency room where my mother stood and tried at that point in time to comfort her, to communicate to her that everything was as it should be, that we would never be separated, that we would never be without each other because love was the true reality and we had love for one another. And so therefore, uh, this physical reality, this living or dying, really uh, meant nothing. She seemed to be comforted at that point in time, and she seemed to be aware that I was with her. And uh, she says this now, that indeed she, she was aware that she could feel me above her head. Then my own personal physician came storming down the hallway. This man was a little country bumpkin doctor, very feisty, foul-mouthed, good-hearted, um, honest, hard-working kind of a general practitioner. And he had been my doctor since about the age of eight. He didn't take kindly to young patients dying on him, especially ones that he had treated earlier in the afternoon. He took that as a as a personal insult. He came storming down the hall in a tuxedo, slammed through the double emergency room doors, and, and, and uh, burst in, into the emergency room. And there was the young doctor who was washing his hands at the sink, and there was two, two nurses on duty there. And the older nurse was on the phone to the morgue, and the body was now on the table, obviously long gone. And he burst through the emergency room and looked at the situation, the doors, looked at the situation and said, where the hell is she? And I'll never forget that because it was, seemed to be hysterically funny to, to all those accompanying me that he didn't seem to get the here and the now at that point in time either, the, the idea of time and space. Where the hell is she? Obviously there was a body on the table. But um, the young doctor then turned around and informed him that uh, I had been down on arrival and that he had attempted to resuscitate me, but uh, had not been able. My doctor immediately uh, went, went to work on me, told the young nurse uh, to bring him up to six uh, injections, 600 cc's, I think it is, of, of, of adrenaline, and he immediately began the resuscitation process on the body. Now, because this man cared, because he had affection, because he had a, really a respect for me as a person and as an individual, my consciousness was not so able to, to leave the emergency room, and I was stuck up in the corner. And I had uh, the horrible situation of having to watch my own resuscitation, which at that point in time, I was beginning to view as one would view one's own murder, because the very idea of physical life to me seemed reverse. It seemed, it seemed like it was not life. It was the world of limitation, the world of darkness, the world in which uh, 
there's always, uh, there's joy, but there's always suffering, the world in which uh, uh, there's never this sense of unconditional love and light and life of which I had been aware. And I was terrified at the idea that he would actually succeed in reviving me. And uh, as some of you may know, the resuscitation process is incredibly brutal. He began uh, uh, beating on the heart uh, physically and, and uh, shocking me and injecting the body with adrenaline. And at one point in time, he had w called for a cardiologist, but there was no cardiologist on duty. And he cursed a, a blue streak at that because he was going to try to inject the heart with adrenaline, which I had never heard of. I mean, that to me was incredibly horrific and barbaric. That was too much to, to endure the very idea that he was going to inject uh, my heart with adrenaline. But then he decided against that he would try one more, one more shot outside the heart. And uh, with, with the last uh, uh, shot and the last round of, of beating on the heart, he was uh, successful in reviving me. And that instant of resuscitation, that instant of where my consciousness rejoined my body was really, to me, I perceive that to be the instant of, of my death. That was the darkest uh, moment in, in my memory because that was the instant at which I, again, uh, became indelibly bound to, to this world in which, uh, in which we are deprived of the sense of constant and, and unconditional love, this world in which we think uh, we sh should compete with one another and should uh, oppress one another for our own advancement, this world really of, of confusion and pain and suffering. My next normal consciousness returned when I awoke in the uh, hospital room. And at first, a nurse came in to take my blood pressure. And at first, I was existing in a realm that seemed to be between the two worlds. It was a realm of, of light. And the nurse came in and roughly took my arm and put, the, put on the cuff for the uh, taking of the blood pressure. And I simply loved her absolutely, unconditionally. I thought she was the most glorious and beautiful individual I had ever seen. In reality, she was a very tough, harsh, you know, kind of nasty, frankly. <laughs> I knew it came to nail this whole will. Nurse, um, it didn't matter. There was such a sense of pervasive love that uh, uh, really the condition of the person who received it was of absolutely no importance. I then uh, became aware that I truly was in the physical body, in the physical world. I remembered my doctor arguing with the young physician, or rather the young physician arguing with my doctor, Dr. Watkins, uh, that uh, the resuscitation process could be very dangerous because I could have massive brain damage. 
And uh, my doctor, uh, who was had at that point removed his jacket, rolled up his sleeves, and was beating on the body, stopped beating on the heart, stopped what he was doing, and said, "Well, what the hell? You know, the patient can't be in much worse shape than she already is." And proceeded to go back to <laughs> beating on the body. But I remember this threat of brain damage. And as I lay there in the bed, I thought, oh my God, how is it possible? How is it possible that I can have this, this, this memory that was greater than any other moment or memory that I would ever know? Um, how is it possible that I could have died and been, been revived? How is it possible that I could have been sent back to this physical life. I then considered the idea of the body as a, as a prison, and as the ultimate prison, I tried to move my hands and my feet, move my toes to see if I had indeed any communication to them. And I found I was able. I seemed to be aware that there was not uh, brain damage from the uh, near-death experience, and that indeed I was bound to this physical realm of limitation. And with that realization came a sense of immediate and catastrophic and immense grief. I then began to cry as one cries at the, at the loss of, of the closest member in one's family. And, and, and sob. My mother was outside the room. She heard my sobbing, and she came in. And she began to, she took my hand and began to rub my hand. And between sobs, I told her that I was dead. I said, I was dead, you know, Mom, I was dead. And she, who had watched me be pronounced dead uh, three times, actually, didn't argue. She said, yes, I know. She just comforted me, and then I told her that I had seen her brother at that point in time. The next morning when my personal physician came in, he was furious. He was absolutely livid. He had thought that I had had a drink or something, that I had taken, being a foolish young teenager, I had had a beer or something after taking antihistamine, and that's what had brought on this uh, tremendous uh, shock reaction. So he came bursting into my room that morning, and he said, what the hell did you do to yourself? And I said, I immediately, I had been a very rather normal, timid 16-year-old girl, but then I responded, right back to him, I said, what the hell did you do to me? Who do you think you are? I, I said, I was dead. I was dead, and you brought me back. Who do you think you are to do that to me? Uh, his reaction was to be completely uh, confused and, and, uh, and abashed, because he saw himself, of course, as being the great hero. I saw him as being the great murderer, suddenly. <laughs> and he stood back, and he thought for a moment. Incidentally, I became aware during the near-death experience that he also had lost a teenage daughter, which was not a piece of information I was aware of. So this is a particularly 
poignant uh, uh, moment for him, and his daughter had died in a rather similar way, actually. But he stood back and, uh, and looked at me, and he said, you weren't dead because you're not dead now. And, of course, if that's how one defines death, then he's correct. If death is a state of absolute no return, then, uh, then he's correct. However, there does seem to be this state that people are experiencing of the near-death experience. And it, I think, presents a tremendous challenge to us as a society and as individuals um, to deal with. I see it's getting rather late. Um, so I suggest maybe that we, t is it possible for us to take a break and then I'll come back and, and uh, uh, take questions and uh, go on from there in, uh, in explaining how I as an individual and how some people come to deal with uh, the near-death experience in terms of their worldview. Thank you very much for your patient and, and quiet attention. Okay. He's asking if I had an, an individual self during the, uh, the, the rescue attempt. And the answer is uh, the, yes and no. <laughs> the, uh, absolutely, my, my consciousness was, was more myself than I had ever been uh, <coughs> during the whole context uh, of the experience. I had a sense of self. I didn't have a sense of control in the sense that we have a sense of control and we act according to our own volition in this life. My, my self was already a being, a being, an essence, a spiritual reality that I had developed in, in this life and that I it took with me into the next life. It, so it was already something that had been created and what happened happened as a result of my own beingness and my own, the essence of my reality as opposed to a conscious decision or an act of volition such as acts that we have in this realm of existence. However, there was a sense of selflessness and that was to me the, the apex of any sense of rapture and peace and bliss was a sense of absolute selflessness and that was when I was dissolved, you might say, in the light, I was simply in and of and because of the light. And that was my ultimate home, simply to be in and of and, and, and because of that light and not to be a, an individual, you know, self or consciousness. So, yes. How can we, he's saying, He's saying that in many of the near-death, he has two friends that have had these experiences, and in both instances there has been a pronouncement that it is not time. And you're asking now what? How? Oh, that the concept of time. Well, there seems to be, uh, it seemed to me that there are two things going on in this life that there's we have we all have a certain destiny and purpose uh, to fulfill on this plane of existence for 
the good of all of mankind, not just for ourselves. Uh, and um, in order to do that, we have to exist in a place in time. And time is part of uh, the, the creation, so time is relevant because physical life is enacted in the realm of space and time. But uh, a true life, we're told in our writings, is the life of the spirit. And, and the ultimate importance should be placed upon our, our, our soul or our spiritual life as opposed to our physical life. But there's no way to have physical life without time and space. It's in the realm of time and space that we are able to uh, grow spiritually, because only in the realm of time and space do we have the wonderful opportunity to suffer. I know that sounds very strange to you, and you'll have to forgive me, but I suppose sometimes people who've had especially multiple near-death experiences are somewhat um, odd. myself included, uh, uh, because our, our perception is entirely different. I didn't tell you about my first near-death experience, but this came as a result of what was the first onset of multiple sclerosis as a result of having rheumatic fever at the age of six. I went into uh, multiple sclerosis, which uh, if you usually encounter it before the age of 10, is almost 100% uh, fatal, but very rare instances people live through it. And it was during that time uh, that I was completely vegetative and, uh, and really uh, locked in a completely useless uh, body that I had a near-death experience as a child. Um, it was Kenneth Ring out of the University of Connecticut who I wrote the experience for, who then called me up and informed me uh, that this was a near-death experience. I hadn't labeled it as such because I actually hadn't been pronounced clinically dead for an extended period of time. But um, in this childhood experience, um, when I was brought back to the body by a grandfather, my grandfather, uh, that I had never met, who had actually died when my mother was six months old, uh, when I was brought back to the body and I was grieving at the very idea of, of coming back into this physical life, especially to this horribly useless uh, body that was, you know, I had bed sores and it was just constant. Uh, any awareness that I would have would be of pain and limitation and, and whatnot. And when I was, uh, uh, grieving to him and, and bewailing the fact that I was being brought back to this life at that point in time, it became very clear to me that suffering in this life can very much be a gift. Not necessarily a gift, it's a catalyst, and a catalyst is, is neutral. But uh, uh, suffering gives us the opportunity to grow spiritually, and if our true reality is spiritual and not physical, uh, and, and if our physical suffering results in the development of our spiritual being and spiritual qualities, then it can indeed be a gift. Because if you think about it, there's no moment that we can be courageous without the existence of pain and danger. There's no way that we can truly show compassion in this 
realm of existence unless, uh, unfortunately, someone else may be suffering. There's no way that we can truly have patience, that spiritual quality of patience, and endure unless things are not going according to how we may desire. And so, uh, if as a result of our physical suffering we can develop these eternal, these essential, these everlasting, these, these non-ephemeral uh, qualities that are going to last beyond our mere 70 years of life, you know, into, into the next realm, then we are creating our own spiritual being that we're going to take with us. And that is the most glorious of achievements uh, that we can possibly have. So suffering uh, from that perspective gives us uh, the opportunity uh, to exhibit spiritual qualities and can indeed uh, be a gift, not that one brings it on. <laughs> so that was... Uh, from my early childhood experience. <laughs> it says in the writings, and we say this daily in a prayer, that you can really, uh, our reason for living is, is to come to know and to love God. You know, and we also believe that we as individuals should contribute to uh, an ever-advancing civilization. So, but the purpose of life, to me, I take that prayer and I translate it into, uh, into another way of saying it, which is the purpose of life is or to give our lives purpose. You know, to give our lives the purpose of life, the meaning in life is to give your life meaning. And, and, and what is that meaning? What is truly meaningful? You know, is it uh, the physical accumulation of, of of things and awards and you know distinctions and whatnot, or or is it truly meaningful to to serve humankind and and uh, to grow spiritually? I I think that that that's really what we're here for. And in growing spiritually, that's what we do. We come to know and to love God and to contribute to uh, an ever advancing civilization. But there's no way for us to have the challenge uh, without the, the light and the darkness, the contrast that's inherent in the physical world. If you think about it, if you walk into a room that's, that's flooded with light, and it's also, you know that there's treasures in that room, just very wonderful things that are awaiting you. If you walk into that room and it's, you're completely flooded with light, you won't be able to perceive anything. Your senses will be overwhelmed. Likewise, if you were to walk into that room and there to be absolute darkness, you couldn't perceive, you wouldn't be aware of the treasures uh, that were there. And, and so in this physical life, we have both joy and pain, light and darkness, um, love and hate, all of those things so that we can perceive the ultimate reality through the vehicle of this physical uh, uh, body. And so in that way, every moment of this life, as painful as it may be, is a gift to us. And even, um, I have a very dear uh, Baha'i friend who has a daughter 
who was born severely brain damaged. And this woman and her husband and her family have incorporated this child very much into their lives and she is unable really to do anything for herself. But uh, it has become such a, a, a glorious thing to watch this family, to watch their dedication and their respect for the human spirit that's in that useless uh, um, body that it really has greatly inspired everyone that they come into contact with. And this is what Baha'u'llah says. He says uh, in one of the hidden words, for everything there is a sign. A sign of love is fortitude under my decree and patience under my trials. So to me personally, I look at that child and of the effects of that child as being really a sign of love in the, in the world. She's a teacher for us all, and she's brought about great and beautiful and, and really glorious qualities uh, in herself and by her being, you know, by her mere patience and enduring, and, and in her family, those people who she comes into contact with. So suffering is a challenge not only to the individual sufferer, but also to the community or the society or the people as a whole. You know, we have to realize uh, that. So it's a, an entirely different way of looking at, the li at, at, at life in the world because that particular life, you would say, has, has no great material uh, benefit. But if our true reality is spiritual, and if her being inspires selflessness and, and devotion and, and, and uh, spiritual growth on the part of so many people, this begins to make, to me, a tremendous amount of uh, rational sense. Have I compiled them into a book? Well, yes, I, I suppose to a certain extent, I, I, I have. I need to complete the work on that, uh, on that uh, book. Could you tell us about your encounter with Baha'i Faith? Uh, yes, uh -huh. he's, he's asking me if, he can, if I could tell you about my encounter with the Baha'i Faith. Um, Yes, uh, we, we jumped right off into questions, which is fine. I, I love the questions, frankly. Um, uh, but my encounter with the Baha'i Faith and how it relates to the near-death experience is really uh, through the words, here am I, here am I. Do you see, when I first encountered Baha'i, I was the age of 13, in order to be a Baha'i, one, one is not born a Baha'i, one has to make a conscious decision, a conscious choice uh, from the age of 15 on. And uh, you can't make that decision if you're under 15 to be a Baha'i. Um, and especially you can't make that decision if it's, uh, if it's against your parents' wishes. Um, so at the age of 13, I went to my first Baha'i fireside and I heard the basic uh, Baha'i teachings. Baha'is have no clergy. We have, uh, uh, for those of you who are here who are not Baha'is, you will not be asked to give money <laughs> because you can't give money according to Baha'i law unless you are a Baha'i to the Baha'i Fund. Um, 
and uh, so therefore we have no no paid clergy and uh, I went to this fireside which is usually a gathering at someone's house where an individual who is not a professional speaker gets up and talks about the basic Baha'i teachings and and uh, and takes questions and uh, people in general discuss in an open manner you know uh, uh, issues and, and the Baha'i teachings in general. Well, I went to this fireside and I saw, first of all, that it was racially integrated, which to me was wonderful, coming from uh, a neighborhood which was almost all white and very rarely integrated, and coming from uh, a minority group myself, and being identified as such, especially as a child, because I seemed to be very dark then, whereas now I don't seem to be that way. Um, I went to this, this group and I saw, first of all, uh, that it was being led by someone of the black race, and he was speaking. And I saw, second of all, that, that men and women were equal in this context. That was very, something that was very important to me, and that's one of the Baha'i principles, is that uh, the equality of, of men and women. And I heard the basic Baha'i teachings that there has been one God, that there is only one humanity, there is not, you know, there's one human race, and that's it, regardless of, of what we call ourselves, what our shape is, or size is, or color is, or, or whatnot, and that we were entering into uh, a new age, and that there had been a new teacher, Baha'u'llah, who had come uh, for this age, and he had uh, left basic teachings that were very similar to, um, really, in essence, uh, all of the world's great religions, the Ten Commandments, and the necessity for purity and chastity in, in one's life and, and whatnot. But he had brought new principles that would bring us now to, to world peace, such as that we as humankind will have to uh, adopt an international auxiliary language so that we can all be unified, we can all communicate, and yet we can all maintain our identity from our cultural background and preserve our precious diversity, you know, so that we can have unity and diversity, which is a phrase from the Baha'i writings. Um, and I heard uh, these basic teachings that, that God is one, that man is one, that this is a new age in which we must establish, you know, unity and harmony, and that there had been a new messenger giving us uh, guidance for this new age, as had been promised. Um, and I was very excited about this because, said, and also that all of the messages of the past had come from one and the same um, God, so that you know, Buddha. The Buddhists weren't going to hell, and my Native American ancestors weren't going to hell, and the Christians weren't going to hell, and, the, and there was not a, a division. You know, that there was one God, and he was not in competition with himself and setting up all of these uh, uh, different entities, but rather that these messages were all from uh, this one is the same God. It's just that now we've come to the time where the world must come together as a whole and be unified. Whereas before, we were all 
at different stages and points and, uh, and, and it didn't communicate with one another and so now there, there was a new message but all of the other messages had been from this one and the same God. And I came home from this fireside so excited to finally see a hope for the world. I know I was only 13, but, but I, you know, my uh, development had been primarily intellectual, I think, from reading and whatnot. Um, anyway, I, I came home and uh, in the car, I had to leave the fireside early, so I didn't get anything about who Baha'u'llah really was that much. But I did get a book called the, the, the Hidden Words, and I did get a little pamphlet at this fireside um, with the basic teachings and principles of the Baha'i Faith, which I'm sure they have lots of them in the, in, in the bookstore available for all of you, if indeed you're interested. <coughs> and uh, I was very excited that Baha'u'llah taught that uh, all, all the religions came from the same God, that we are all one people, and that this was the time for unity and, and that religion and science were ultimately in agreement and that men and women were equal and this was the time for the breakdown of prejudices. I was so excited about these principles that I immediately wanted to become a Baha'i. They wouldn't let me become a Baha'i in the car on the way home, because I was too young. You have to sign a card to become a Baha'i, but you have to be 15 years old. Um, they said, maybe you can talk to your mother about it. Maybe she'll let you do something. So I said, great. I know my mother is going to be in complete agreement with these principles. She's going to find this to be exactly what the world needs, and there's not going to be a problem with that. And I uh, came in and told her about Baha'i. And she uh, looked at the pamphlet and looked at the basic principles of the Baha'i faith and said, well, no one could, you know, disagree with these. These are absolutely true. You know, I mean, this, this just makes uh, terrific uh, sense to me. She said, but uh, Baha'i, you know, first of all, is a very strange name at, at that point in time. This is in 1963, so it was even stranger then than I imagine it is to some of you now. And then she, she sat and thought about it late that night and said, you know, I, I can't let you be a Baha'i. I can never let you become a Baha'i as long as you are living in my house because I'm afraid for your very soul that if you become a Baha'i, you will be denying Christ. Well, with that, it was as if she took a great sword and, and, and put it through my heart. <gasps> I was terrified. The very idea that I would be denying Christ was something that was not acceptable to me. And I, I hadn't heard anything that was denying Christ in the, in the Baha'i teachings. As a matter of fact, he was glorified and accepted and uh, and as being, you know, the spirit of, of, of God on earth. I didn't see any conflict there, but I was accepting something else, something in addition to it, and that was really the Baha'i teachings. And my mother really frightened me that somehow I would be denying Christ. And I left her, and I took my little book called The Hidden Words 
which of Baha'u'llah's. These are his actual words, and they exist in uh, in uh, Israel. There are many on, on Mount Carmel. There are wonderful buildings such as uh, this, which is the shrine of the Bab, and and this is the shrine of actually Baha'u'llah. They're very natural, very simple, but very beautiful, serene kinds of buildings. But um, where was I? I? I took the hidden words, and his actual words exist on Mount Carmel in, in Israel, where Baha'u'llah revealed certain tablets and where he was imprisoned uh, in Akka. But, uh, I took this book and read from them, and then I took the Bible and put it on the other side of the room and read from it. And the first thing that I read, if you remember, were things such as this. Remember I spoke about the people of the just in the near-death experience. Really, the theme, uh, the constant theme, the essence of all religion is really love, love of man for man, love of man for God. But the theme of the Baha'i revelation is justice. And Baha'u'llah began his revelation with uh, the second hidden word from here, which is, is this, the best beloved, O son of spirit, the best beloved of all things in my sight is justice. Turn not away therefrom if thou desirest me and neglecteth not that, that, that I may confide in thee. By its aid thou shalt see with thine own eyes and not through the eyes of others, and shalt know of thine own knowledge and not through the knowledge of thy neighbor. Ponder this in thy heart, how it behooveth thee to be. Verily justice is my gift to thee, and the sign of my loving kindness. Set it then before thy eyes, thine eyes. Well, I read from the hidden words, and then I read from the Bible. And in both instances, my heart said this was the voice of God. And in both instances, I said These, this is absolute truth, and this is absolute truth. And I was irresistibly attracted to the Baha'i teachings because I, I saw in them really the same light that I saw in the light of Christ. And I realized that it was impossible for me not to, not to really accept Baha'i at that point in time, and yet I was terrified. So I fell on the floor that evening and I begged God instantly to show me if I was to show me the right path, to give me an answer, to protect me from in any way, you know, denying Christ because I would have rather died than to have denied Christ. And yet my heart was irresistibly attracted to the words of Baha'u'llah, and I saw in them the same light that I saw in, in the Bible. And that night I had a vision, and in that vision it was relates to the near-death experience, because really the same words were spoken. I don't remember getting into bed from the floor. You know, 13-year-olds are really histrionic. They can be very dramatic at, 
have to use the lemons. But I, I, I don't remember getting into bed, but I do remember feeling absolutely pulled through the house and attracted uh, through the house to a great beauty, to a great holy and sanctified and, and, and sacred and loving uh, beauty. And as I moved through the house, the closer I got, the more joyous I became. And I opened the back door of the house. And when I opened the back door of the house, I saw there a being of light. And this being, I immediately recognized as being the being who, who was, who carried really uh, the same spirit as Christ, but yet came in the station of the Father. I realized that this was a different individual, but yet the same spirit and the same light that I saw in Christ. And I immediately recognized him. And he then extended his hand to me in this incredibly glorious and loving and merciful and uh, uh, impressive manner and said, here am I, here am I. And with that, I begged to know uh, who he was as an individual. Who are you? I asked that question. I begged for him to accept my heart at that point because I instantly recognized the sacredness and truth of his being. And I instantly understood that this was the blessed beauty and, and the ancient beauty. Um, I didn't know that those words related to the Baha'i writings, nor did I know that the words, here am I, here am I, relate to prophecies about Baha'u'llah. Or, nor did I know at that time or at the time of the near-death experience um, uh, that they relate specifically uh, uh, to Baha'u'llah's uh, tablet to the Christians in which he announces to the world that he is indeed uh, the promised one. I'll read some of that to you and you can see how it relates. And I'll read some of the biblical things to you. Baha'u'llah to the Christians says, and this is something I, I have to tell you was not, is not in the hidden words, which was the only piece of the Baha'i writings that I had at, um, at that point in time. Baha'u'llah says in his tablet to the Christians, the most holy tablet, he, he addresses them and says, open the doors of your hearts Will ye bar the doors of your houses in my face? The river Jordan is joined to the most great ocean, and the sun in the holy veil crieth out, Here am I, here am I, O Lord my God. While Sinai circleth round the house, and the burning bush calleth aloud, He who is the desired one is come in his transcendent majesty. Say, lo, the Father is come, and that which ye were promised in the kingdom is fulfilled. This is the word that the Son concealed, when to those around him he said, Ye cannot bear it now. 
He goes on to say, Beware, O followers of the Son, that ye cast it not behind your backs. Take ye fast hold of it. Better is this for you than all that ye possess. Well, I was unaware of this tablet, as also I was unaware of the of, uh, biblical uh, mention of this phrase. In the book of Isaiah, it says, in speaking of the coming of the day of the promised one, he says, Isaiah says, therefore my people, it's talking about how he will come with a new name. Yeah, that's one of the things, that let me preface that. In the book of Isaiah 52, 6 through 8, it says, therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak, here am I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good tidings, who publishes peace, who brings good tidings of good, who brings salvation, and who says to Zion, your God reigns. Hark, your watchmen lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye, they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Why do I uh, choose to speak tonight about the impossible? Um, because I believe we can all listen with our hearts. I believe that there's a knowing in all of us uh, that goes beyond uh, mere words. Um, there's a hidden word of, of Baha'u'llah's that uh, alludes to this, in which he says, O oh, my friends, have ye forgotten that true and radiant morn, when in those hallowed and blessed surroundings ye were all gathered in my presence beneath the shade of the tree of life, which is planted in the all-glorious paradise? Awestruck he listened as I gave utterance to these three most holy words. O oh, friends, pre prefer not your own will to mine. Never desire that which I have not desired for you. And approach me not with lifeless hearts, defiled with worldly desires and cravings. He goes on to say, Would ye but sanctify your souls, ye would at this present moment recall that place and those surroundings and the truth of my utterance should be made evident unto all of you. So I speak about it because I think it's possible for us to understand beyond mere words. I ask you, though, to, to remain aware that, that any word is absolutely uh, improper. And when we use words like see and hear and and no, it is not in the same sense that, that we normally uh, perceive uh, this way. And I speak about this also because we're facing a, a societal and individual crisis of meaning. It seems uh, 1993 is a very significant year in terms of the Baha'i faith. It's 100 years since the passing of Baha'u'llah who to Baha'is was the promised one of all ages. His name means the glory of God, and he fulfills a tremendous body of prophecy um, in terms of his life, his imprisonment, where he was banished, the number of children he had, all of the events in his life, the letters that he wrote to the kings and whatnot. 
And, and yet for a hundred years, uh, the world has for the most part remained unaware of this new message and this new revelation from God. Um, 1993 is, is, is very significant because we see the world both evolving and, uh, and breaking down. Just when it seemed that we were coming to the point of, of healing as a society, just when the wall came down in, in, in Berlin, just when uh, the Cold War ended, it seems that we're, uh, and we're no longer living under the threat of uh, nuclear destruction and, and annihilation in that scenario, uh, we now recognize that uh, perhaps we're breaking apart from within. We're breaking apart as a society as a result of our own prejudices, as, our, as a result of our own hatreds, as a result of our own misunderstanding of who we are really and, and why we're here. And as we break apart, it seems that the natural order of things uh, seems to be uh, breaking down also. We see an unprecedented scale of recent natural disasters, to wit the earthquakes, tornadoes, and hurricanes that have uh, plagued us. And these aberrations in the, the physical world seem to reflect our own internal confusion and disorder. So just when we thought that the body of mankind was on its way to hell, we may very well discover that it is riddled with a cancer that is emanated from its very cells. We need to heal these cells to heal the body of mankind, and these cells are the individual souls and hearts of humankind. And that healing can only take place if we begin to understand who we as human beings truly are and why we're here. To understand our purpose on this plane of existence, to whatever extent we're able, it helps us to come to understand where we are headed, the nature of our final destination, and that entails addressing the issue of death. To do this, to understand our purpose in this life, let us first look at the beginning of our physical lives. We can best understand the human condition in the embry embryonic phase because we are aware of its ultimate destination. Imagine, if you will, the child in the womb world. We, from our perspective on this plane of existence, the material world as we know it, understand and recognize that the period of gestation in the womb is simply a temporary stage of development of what will be an individual. It is an especially meaningful but a transitory phase during which the child in the womb acquires certain qualities, limbs, etc., that will be quite useful when he's born into this world. We know that because our perspective encompasses both the womb world and this, the greater world. Now let's carry the analogy a bit further. If that child in the womb world could have the ability to exercise its free will, it may decide not to grow certain appendages, such as arms and legs, ears and, and, and eyes, and those appendages that will be very useful when that child dies from that world of existence into this greater physical world of existence. We know that if the child were able to make such a decision, 
it would be greatly hampered when born into this world because we know that in this world those physical attributes are necessary. But from the perspective of the child in the womb, the gestating child, the womb is the only world that that child has ever known. It's his entire and absolute reality. Making such a decision, such as not to grow arms or legs or have his eyes develop, might seem entirely rational from his perspective or from his limited point of view. Because he's not aware of this coming world, the world into which he'll be born. And so it is with this physical life. This, too, is not our ultimate home. During our sojourn here, we must acquire certain qualities and virtues and perfections that may not seem to be immediately relevant to our situation. Is this physical world all there really is? The physical world, if you look at it, is a world of change and relativity, a world of flux and chaos, a world of pain and limitation. Is this truly the real world? Or is our absolute reality beyond change and chance, caprice, and the fluctuations of this world? The 1982 Gallup poll indicated that 8 million Americans believed that they had experienced a near-death phenomena. And it's estimated that 40% of all people who are going to be medically resuscitated at the point of death may experience the near-death near phenomena. The people who have reported NDEs have crossed all ethnic, religious, and cultural groups, and they report a consistent pattern or series of elements to the experience, regardless of their pre-existing beliefs. Kenneth Ring, out of the University of Connecticut, has done a great body of research on this, and he's broken the, the stages down into, into five different stages. Not every individual who has a near-death experience goes through all five stages. Um, but some do. The, the deepest experience that I'll share with you tonight uh, does contain all five of these uh, phases. The five phases of the positive near-death experience are first, a sense of peace of well-being. Second, a sense of separation of consciousness from the body. Third, there is a stage where one enters the darkness or the tunnel. The fourth stage is seeing the light. And the fifth stage is entering the light. Now, these are very nice, tidy, linear uh, stages. However, to someone who's had a near-death experience, it seems uh, incongruous to, to use these kinds of words to describe it because it seems more as if it were a simultaneous matrix of impressions as opposed to something to be broken down in a linear sense. But again, this reflects the limitation of our words and the limitations of how we come to an understanding, an intellectual understanding on this uh, plane of existence. These people who have gone through positive near-death experiences report an increased sense of a belief in God, an increased feeling or a concept of God in their lives, a sense of a personal closeness with, 
or relationship with God, an absolute belief in life after death, and also a desire to serve others. Now again, this is a human experience and it differs from one individual to another and it's experienced along a continuum. However, the, when we look at the whole population, this is uh, what is found. There are also negative near-death experiences. These uh, are not frequently reported, uh, but they are there in the, in the data. And those stages are again five, the first stage is where the individual feels a sense of panic. The individual then has an out-of-body experience. They enter a black void or a barren and empty expanse as opposed to the light or a beautiful environment. They sense an evil force and they know that they're entering or they are in a hell-like ex environment. Instead of having affectionate conversations with friendly and welcoming beings, they report seeing lifeless apparitions and experiencing from these dark others threats or just mere cold silence. This fits in very well with the Baha'i teachings on life after death. We believe that all people live after death because the human reality is spiritual and not merely physical. However, Abdu'l-Bahá tells us, for those who believe in God, those who have love of God and faith, life is excellent, life in the next world. That is, it is eternal. But to those souls who are veiled from God, although they have life, it is dark. So, these near-death uh, reports seem to dovetail in very much uh, with the Baha'i writings. People who have near-death experiences report that they are less interested in formal religious involvement. They quite frequently go, undergo religious change, uh, and quite often that results in their uh, disaffiliation with any quote-unquote organized uh, uh, religion. Although they feel an increased closeness to God, an increased need to, to pray and to worship and to serve others. 